We're, we're taking this Advent season and we are just looking at the, the big history, um, the big history of, uh, that leads up to Jesus. Um, why? And when we read the lines in the scriptures, we remember that we're, this is connected to a much bigger story. Now, for us, it's a big story. Um, on the sweep of the historical stage, in terms of the rest of the world noticing, most of this goes unnoticed, and yet it changes the world. Matthew chapter 1 is where we started last week, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And last week we talked about Jesus being the son of Abraham. I'm just going to read the verses that come to David. Abraham was the son of Isaac. Hey, do you guys want me to read it with the Hebrew pronunciations of the names? All right. Avraham was the father of Yitzhak. Yitzhak, the father of Yaakov. Yaakov, the son of Yehuda and his brothers. And Yehuda was the son of Perez and Zarah by Tamar. That was his daughter-in-law. Let's not get into it. Perez was the father of Hetzron. Hetzron, the father of Ram. Ram, the son of Aminadab. Aminadab, the son of Nachshon. Nachshon, the son of Salmon. Salmon, the son of Boaz by Rahav. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Yese, Yese, the father of David, the king, David Hamalek. All right. Um, and so when we get to David, David is my homeboy. I, I love David. And this is I've been studying David's life. And one day I'm going to uh, write a book called Short Chieftain of the Highlands. It's just a. Um, about David and everything that it was, but, um, but we're going to get into that. But I want to talk, I want to get from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We got to the Exodus last week. We want to get to the kingdoms and to David. So real briefly, last week I mentioned some things. I thought I might flesh it out a little bit for you just graphically so that you could see. So I put together a couple of slides. I mentioned that almost everything, every depiction we have of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac is drawn from the 1800s when the, uh, Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire was collapsing. Europeans were able to go into what today we call the Middle East, and they observed the life, life cycle, the life system of a people called the Bedouin, um, and they just assumed that Abraham would have looked like them. And that's why all of your family Bibles and your children's stories have uh, Abraham. He's got a long, kind of long, big robe and usually like some kind of hat. And he looks kind of like Santa Claus. And so I wanted to give you a depiction of what they actually looked like. So I figured that would be helpful. So um, th this is uh, a picture. Uh, you guys are all super excited. I'm sure you can see really clearly. Don't worry, I'm going to fix this. Um, from a leader of the Amway, got that? Amway, um, you got to swallow that first sound. Amway, um, the Levant, Amway. All right, so the Amway Levantine warrior from the tomb of Numhotep the first. Numhotep was a, uh, he was a, a, he was a functionary in the government of Egypt. He wasn't a pharaoh or anything like that. Um, and his tomb, um, there is a depiction of, uh, of, what they called the Umwe or the Asiatics or the people from the Levantine area, which is what is today Israel, Lebanon, Syria, um, and Jordan. Um, the next slide shows you a little bit of a sketch of what it looks like. This is what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have dressed like. Now, if we go back to the previous slide, you can maybe make out that their robes are colored. They're striped. They've got patterns and things going on. 
and uh, go back to this one. So you can see the robe, and you can also see it goes over one shoulder. That's why when I mentioned last week that Joseph's multicolor, technicolor sh- jacket, you know, the whole thing, that's a mistranslation. It's actually long sleeve shirt is what, what the Hebrew actually means, or lo- long sleeve robe. Uh, you'll notice, and I'll show you in a second, but all of these people are depicted in Egyptian, Egyptian art having a, a kilt that only goes over one shoulder. And that seems to have been the sign of being an adult. You wore your kilt over one shoulder. So um, children, young men, wore just a kilt, no top, and young ladies wore sleeved shirts. That's, that's where that phrase comes from. Um, but you'll notice he's got a mace in his hand. The reason that this is important is because, um, and it's Numhotep the first, not that you guys care, but it's the first, not the second. I've got to talk to my transcriptionist about that. Um, but... Uh, these guys, the reason it's important is Numhotep records the arrival of the um, uh, movie. You guys thought I couldn't do it randomly, right? Um, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> I didn't study all these languages for no reason. Um, these people arrived in Egypt, and this you'll find very interesting, as mercenaries. Um, they came down from the Levant into, is, into Egypt and then were sent out as troops, as soldiers to defend the boundaries of Egypt. I mentioned last week that Abraham, we have Abraham go to Egypt and when he goes to Egypt, he's worried about Pharaoh marrying his wife, Sarah. Um, and so he tells her, go ahead and tell him that you're, his, you're my sister, which actually was true. She was his half sister. Let's not get into that. Um, and, um, but he, to, and He's worried about a what's, what would have been a behavior in his kingdom. An Egyptian would have never dreamed of marrying a Semitic woman. That, that would have been beneath them. Um, but to, Mo, to Abraham, he's thinking, my wife's pretty good looking. We don't have any children, so I, you know, he's just going to kill me and I'm going to be dead. And then, Moses, or, uh, then Pharaoh sends Abraham out to live on the eastern side of his sphere of domain what today would be um, the, the west bank of, uh, of the Jordan River. And Abraham's job there is to secure the borders. Abraham is a warrior. We have records of his wars. He's, he's a fighter. He's a soldier. In fact, again, this kind of blows things up. But throughout ancient society, the Jews, the Hebrews, were known as great warriors. Um, they fought in some of the armies that you've ever heard of. You've heard of Alexander the Great? Hebrews made up a large part of his army. You've heard of the Persians? Hebrews fought for them. You, you've heard of the, you know, you haven't heard of, have you heard of King Midas? Hebrews fought for him. They exported two things, scribes and soldiers. And they were very good at what they did. I've mentioned before that in the Roman Empire, upwards of 20% of the Roman legions were Jews. So they were known for being fighters. And this goes all the way back. Now, this is not Abraham, just to be clear. This was not captioned, you know, Abraham. Um, but this is what they're... And that thing that in his, is in his hand is a mace. I can just tell you, I would not want to get hit with that. I don't know, what it, I don't know how exactly you used it, but it looks extremely painful. Um, anyway, so that's the leader. You can go to the next one. Uh, this is a depiction of a migration from the same tomb, a re- migration of those, those Asian people coming with their wives. There's a couple of very interesting things about this. I'm just going to plant some seeds to kind of change your reading of the Old Testament. 
Uh, Number one, you'll notice that um, they're all wearing sunglasses. Uh, that's actually the Egyptians when they depict people with their their eyes they always have that that black line around their eyes that believe it or not everybody thinks that was cosmetic that was actually magical the, the idea was that you could capture people by by looking into their eyes um, and then they got uh, donkeys and you can see their ladies all these different clothes now you can't see the Egyptians in the depiction but the Egyptians in the depiction are wearing white the reason they're wearing white is that Egyptians wore linen you ever tried to dye linen? Doesn't work. These people wore wool. And so they were able to weave wool into all these intricate patterns. And they looked a little bit weird um, to the Egyptians. Um, it actually gets kind of cold in the mountains of the Levant, which is why you need to wear wool. All right? um, but uh, Whereas in Egypt, it doesn't get cold. Anyway, so you can see that they've got donkeys. Why do you have a donkey? Because you live in a hill country. Donkeys are really only useful when you live in a hill country. If you live in flat country, you use horses. But in hills, you use uh, donkeys and mules. And you can't see, but on the other side of this mural, and I'll be happy to send you a picture of this, but on the other side of this mural, one of the coolest things is a bunch of guys carrying bows and one guy carrying a guitar, which I just love. They're like, all right, let's go to Egypt. And everybody's like, I got my bow, I got my spear, I got my donkey, got my wife. And there's one dude who goes... Um, but they were a musical people. By the way, this has nothing to do with this, but you can just follow this away. The two oldest textualized passages of the Old Testament. Now, not the oldest, they're the oldest that were written down, not the oldest that existed, just the first that are written down. Two songs, the Song of Moses and the Song of Deborah. Um, those are the oldest, linguistically, the oldest copy, oldest things in the Hebrew Bible. You can just follow that away for later. Anyway, now, so this group of people, and we're just going to hang out with them for a little bit, they slowly migrate into Egypt. Uh, the, the Israelites show up um, under Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph becomes a leader in Egypt. His family moves down. Uh, why do they move down? Those of you that were at Sunday school, what, why, why, does jo- why do the people of Israel move to Egypt? Because of a famine. All right. Very, very common thing in the Levant because the Levant is what's called a rain-dependent agricultural society. They use rain as their primary source of water. What does Egypt use as their primary source of water? The Nile River. You know how often it rains in Egypt? Never. It almost never rains in Egypt. Um, so the Nile River, so they have a, they have a river-based society, um, but the Levant is a rain-based society. So there's this famine. Joseph foresees a seven-year famine. When you have seven years of famine, you have to, you know, move or die. And that's what happens. Well, these people, the Israelites, have been on the outer boundaries of the Egyptian sphere, defending the Egyptian interest for three generations. So they move in. They come back to Egypt and Egypt takes care of them. But they're not the only people that the Egyptians have sent out, so more and more come in. In the ancient Hebrew rec- in the ancient Egyptian record, this is called the invasion of the Hyksos. All right? Hyksos is Egyptian for foreign king. And it was this group of Semitic people moved into Egypt and eventually they take over what is the the Nile. Well, what happens? The famine ends right? There's seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Then it ends. Well, as it ends, 
Produce goes back to production, starts going, populations start to increase. But while Israel was in Egypt, other people moved into the area where they used to live. Now what do you do with this group of people living in your land that you don't want anymore, especially after you overthrow their kings? You make them slaves, and then you put certain checks in to keep their population down. When you read Exodus chapter 1, what do we read? We read, there arose a king who knew not Joseph, and what does he do? He enslaves the people of Israel, and then when they keep multiplying, what does he do? He, he starts having the midwives bring the sons to him so he can kill them. When the midwives start hiding the sons, they just go out and gather up all the sons of Israel and they kill them, throw them in the Nile. This is, this is just what history does. You go, well, wouldn't the Egyptians have mentioned something like this? No. No, they wouldn't have. The Egyptians were just like the rest of us. They put their best face forward. Except instead of taking their Instagram shot like this to make sure that they look super awesome, they go to their scribes and say, only write the stuff that makes us look good on the walls. So you can't, the Egyptians are as untrustworthy in the narratives, narrators as you could possibly get. They never lose a battle. In like 3,000 years of history, the Egyptians never lost a battle. Somehow they lost land, they lost people, they, but never lost a battle. It's amazing the way that the Egyptians were so perfect. Um, it's almost like they only wanted to tell us their side of things. So uh, Joseph, the, the Israelites then become enslaved. We're all familiar with this. You know, Charlton Heston, Prince of Egypt, all the stories that tell this um, and get lots and lots of things from Jewish tradition and not from history. But then we have the Exodus. Uh, Moshe, Moses. Um, Moshe is not a Hebrew word. It's not his birth name. It's the Egyptian name for Moses. He who draws out or he who was drawn out. It's a funny little play on words. Because not only is, as a child, Moses drawn out of the Nile River, but he also draws Israel out of Egypt. See? Funny little language things you learn. Moses comes. We, you know, in the in Ten Commandments, right? Which is like seven and a half hours long. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the Ten Commandments. It's the second longest movie in the world behind Never Ending Story, which is actually only like an hour and 45 minutes, but feels like 13 years. Um, the... the uh, not my favorite movie. Uh, but in Ten Commandments, if you watch the movie Ten Commandments, how much of that movie actually deals with the people of Israel in the wilderness? Like, none of it. It's all about Egypt, you know, pharaohs and, Mo and all that stuff. I mean, I grew up thinking that, you know, Moses was best friends with the son of Pharaoh and that whole storyline. He falls in love with the girl. And I mean, everything that happens. How many of you have seen Ten Commandments? I should start with that. Okay, yes. Anybody the under, under the age of 30 has never seen that movie. Um, it goes on and on and on, all this stuff. That none of that actually happened that we know of. It's just added in. But Moses, right, he leads Israel out of Egypt. And what does Moses do? What is the big thing that Moses gave to Israel? Right? The Ten Commandments, right? Which, by the way... Every time you see Moses holding those tablets, wrong. Um, that's not how it works. They're even written in Proto-Hebrew, wrong. Um, but uh, 
this is, a, this is an interesting little tidbit, and I'm just going to give you these historical bits around here, but I want to show you something. The next one. This is a letter by a guy named Bebe. Written to his daughter, whose name is like Marakanarama. It's like 87 syllables long. But his name is Bebe. And I just, I just love that that's his name. Um, this is a letter... And his title, which I'm not going to deal with at all, but this is written in what's called hieratic. Um, it's a mix, mixture hieratic, alphabetic. Um, all the way over here, and this, it, it's written up and down like this. All the way over here is his title, and his title is General of the Umwe. All right? He is, he's a Asiatic. He's, a, he's one of the Hyksos. He's related to the, the Hebrews. And he writes this letter to his daughter. The fascinating thing about this is, um, whenever he doesn't know what the symbol is for a word, because Egyptian is an ideographic language, you, you draw pictures and those pictures represent sounds which represent ideas, um, he just spells it out. However he feels like spelling it out. Uh, now this was done in about 1800 BC, so about almost 4,000 years ago, this letter. Um, the Hebrews, the Hyksos, the Syrians, the Asiatics who are in Egypt are watching the Egyptians write hieroglyphics. Now, how many of you would love to learn to read Egyptian hieroglyphics? No one? A couple of you? Let me tell you what I did in undergraduate college with my free time. I bought an Egyptian dictionary and then went to the Museum of Fine Arts and sat in the Egyptian rooms reading the inscriptions like this. I just I was fascinated by Egyptian. You know why? Cuz their writing say it, their writing system makes no sense at all. It was intentionally complicated so that it required a professional to be able to write it and to record it. So now you have a bunch of Asiatics, right, walking around Egypt. At first free people, then as slaves. And they just see all this writing around. And the Egyptians are notoriously xenophobic. So they hate strangers. So they're never going to tell you what their language means. Now the reality is about 1% of their population actually could read their language. All right? Professional class of scribes. So most of the Egyptians don't know what it means. But have you ever had this moment with your kids where your kids ask you about something, you don't know really what it is, but you know they won't remember the story, so you just make something up? And that's, what, that's how I picture this. I picture some Hebrew walking up to an Egyptian going, hey, what does that sign say? Oh, well, there were, uh, there were owls, and they were walking across wavy lines, and when they got to the, you know, and they're just making it up. They don't know what it means. Well, what's interesting is what happens is the Hebrews... They, they don't know what all those symbols mean, so they start taking those symbols and saying, well, this kind of looks like. So they see this symbol that looks like a rectangle with two little legs. And they go, well, that kind of looks like a house. And our word for house is beat. And so we're going to use that symbol to represent the B sound. And, and we see this, this little symbol, this little wavy thing. Um, well, we don't know what that means, but it, it kind of looks like shoe. 
which is our word for flow and move. So, so we're going to pronounce that one as sh. And before too long, they put together a list of about 22 of these symbols that they can use to make every one of their consonantal sounds. And they invent what is called the proto-synatic, proto-alphabetic system, which becomes Hebrew. Edomite, Moabite, Aramean, Phoenician, uh, a bunch of other languages, they all use the same system. They get it all from the Egyptians because the Egyptians refused to tell them how to read. So when Moses writes the Ten Commandments, when he writes them down, for generations, scholars said, those people didn't have writing. That couldn't have happened. And then we found Bebe. An Asiatic, somebody who would have spoken a language related to Hebrew, writing a mixed alphabetic hieroglyphic language, could Moses have recorded the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. We now know that the alphabet was in use by the year 1400 BC in the Sinai. Guess by whom? Levantine, Northwest Semitic language-speaking people related to the Hebrews. I'm going to make an extraordinary claim. You will never read in any history book anywhere you ever go, but I'm a doctor, so I can do that now. (laughs) The Hebrews invented the alphabet for one reason and one reason alone. They were called to record the words of their God. And because of their commitment to the word of their God, they created what today we would call literate society. Before this period, before Iron Age 1, writing is entirely for the elite. It is for that 1% in Egypt who can read the hieroglyphics. It's for the 1% or 2% in Mesopotamia who can read Akkadian cuneiform, which is a complicated, ridiculously complicated system. And, and, but the Hebrews, they need to record the story of their God. And so over time, they develop this thing we call the alphabet. Moses records the Ten Commandments. And he records them. Uh, Moses writes a song in Exodus 15. And it's recorded in the language that he writes, what's known as archaic Hebrew amongst linguists. So they come out of Egypt. They go not to the Sinai Peninsula. Again, you see a diagram in your Bibles. It's wrong. The Sinai Peninsula was dominated by the Egyptians. They had military bases there. That is not where the Israelites go. They go to what is today northwest Saudi Arabia, the land of Midian, all right? That's where Moses' father-in-law is from. That's where they go. They go to Midian. They wander around for 40 years. They get the law. They do a bunch of stupid stuff. God punishes them. And then finally, Joshua, whose name, Yeshua, is the same name as Jesus, Yeshua. He's the salvation. Joshua leads them into the land of Canaan. Yay, life is great. Life is good. And they proceed to spend centuries of complete and utter anarchy. What happens is called the late Bronze Age collapse. I know you all are really excited about that. 
Something happens. We don't know what it was. It could have been a volcanic eruption. It could have been a massive earthquake. Every single major civilization on the eastern Mediterranean collapses within about 200 years. They all collapse. And the world descends into anarchy. Because you do need, as much as I would love to not have some kind of central power and authority, you do need somebody to keep the lights on. You do need somebody to protect you from the wolves. You do need somebody to take care of you. And in this period, what we call Iron Age 1, there rises up this thing called the secondary state. These are guys who style themselves as rulers. Melech is the Hebrew word. Today we translate it as king. That is not what it originally meant. It originally meant chieftain or tough guy. Somebody who was going to protect you. A soldier, a warrior who was going to protect you. Now remember, who are the Hebrews? Why did they wind up in Egypt to start with? They're soldiers. They're warriors. So should it be any surprise that the Hebrews, they want a warrior to lead them. They have this period of the shepatim, the, the, the judges. Again, English word, not so great. We think judges, we're thinking guys sitting at a bench, white wig, pounding the gavel. That's not what they were doing. Um, their job was actually to protect kind of loose confederacies of people from incursions. But then come the kings. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you know the story. People of Israel wants a king. They want a king, they want a king. Samuel says, you don't want a king. God says, give them a king. Give them what they deserve. They get a guy named Saul. He's a terrible king. He's the worst. Now, outside, impressive. Everything about him is extraordinary. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He seems to be humble. He's a great fighter. He, he um, seems to have his head around him. But he just is in over his depth. He is the Millard Fillmore of Israelite kings. Millard Fillmore, by the way, for those of you that didn't pay attention in U.S. history, was a U.S. president. Do you know anything about Millard Fillmore? Exactly. All right, Saul becomes is the king. He's the chieftain. He's the big, strong guy. His job is to protect the people of Israel, and he fails misery against a group called the Palisti, the Philistines. They are even bigger than Saul, stronger than Saul. They've got that giant Goliath. You've all heard about him. Big, angry, ugly dude. Um, and Saul doesn't want to fight him. The world is falling apart, but God brings in David. And David is also a terrible human being. <laughs> In one part of 2 Samuel, by the way, David manages to break nine of the Ten Commandments. And the only way he doesn't break the tenth one is it didn't happen on a Sabbath day. David is not a great guy, and yet the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Because David is um, more than, not because he's perfect, but because he is aware he is not perfect. He has given a covenant with God that his house will sit on the throne of Israel for all eternity. Now, for some of you, this might be old hat. I just want to give you a little bit of a, a doodad here. David is the descendant of Judah's son that he had with his daughter-in-law. I mentioned that last week and it was gross. David is eight generations away from that. Later on, the book of Deuteronomy will say that 
in the case in the case of this kind of immoral activity, the children are not allowed to be in leadership of the of the people of Israel for eight generations. David comes in. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on with David that I wish I could spend days and days talking about this. And then, just right, we picked up with David. I just want to write, read this one line in verse 6. David was the father of Shulamon, Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. You know the story? David is the king. What is the job of a king? The king's job is to be a warrior, to protect his people. He's established his kingdom. He's doing all the right things. But one season, when the kings are supposed to go out, his uncle Joab is so terrified that... I'm sorry, his cousin Joab is so terrified that something might happen to David. He says, David, you stay home. I'll go out and fight the war for you. And Joab is a bloodthirsty, mercenary, terrible human being. He is the dog of war. You ever want to read in the Bible a really, really repulsive, repugnant person? Read Joab. Um, and, uh, and he said, Joab says to David, you got to go, you stay home. I'm going to go out to war. Well, this is the springtime. David is at home. He's got nothing to do because he doesn't have an Xbox or a PlayStation. He's bored. He's used to fighting. He goes out on his balcony and out where he can see is a young girl who is taking her first ritual purification after she is qualified to be married. She's, She's married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite. Um, and she, this is probably, she's ready to be married. Ask your mom and dad. Um, David sees her, takes her, tries to, eventually murders her husband. Their first child dies. David repents, is torn apart. You can read about it in the Psalms. He is broken down to the very basic level. And then they have a second son. And that son, his name is Solomon. Um, Nathan the prophet actually names him Jedediah, but Jed's not here, so I can't make that joke. And Solomon establishes the kingdom. He builds the great kingdom of Israel, what we would call the, the, the transition from secondary state to kingdom state. We have to come look at this narrative and recognize something that Israel was willing, that the the disciples being Jews were willing to recognize about their own history that we need to recognize about our history. It is that the blemishes in our history, all right, do not negate the covenants of God. So often I hear from people, I did this, I did that, and so I don't feel, I don't feel that I could be loved. I, I can't get out of the trap of my past. I, I'm buried, all of these things. We talk about all of these things. When we look at the broad sweep of history, we are reminded that A, no one is perfect. All of us fail. But God's covenants are bigger than our failures. Now, some of, and I'm not saying that our sins and our failures don't have repercussions. They do. When David sinned with Uriah, the punishment that God meets out or, uh, with uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the punishment that God meets out is not the punishment for murder. 
which would have been that David had to be killed, but the punishment for theft. And so David loses four of his sons, his four most beloved sons. He, he, loses, uh, he loses his absolute favorite son, Absalom. Um, and how do you know that, David's, that Absalom was David's favorite son? Absalom was allowed to grow his hair out beyond the, the, the tradition. It actually winds up getting tangled in a tree and Joab kills him. Remember, I told you Joab's a terrible person. But David fails. God shows grace. God honors his covenant. He still would, David still has to deal with the repercussions, but God's covenant stays in place. The long history of Israel is God succeeding where we fail. So when you allow yourself, your life, your journey, to be defined by your failures, you are in conflict with God. Well, I can't do this because um, I did that one day. Now, we deal with that. We deal with the repercussions of that. But we can't live in our failures. We also can't live in the future. We have to live in the sacred now. And if God gives a covenant, God honors that covenant. Somebody asked me one time, could I sin in such a way that God couldn't forgive me and I would lose my salvation? First of all, What are you planning on doing? (laughs) Why are you asking me that question? You're like, how far can I push this and still get a little Jesus in my life? There's a different problem there. But people say, well, can, can you sin in such a way that God stops loving you? I would answer no. Are there repercussions to your sin? Yes. But does God's covenant get negated? What kind of God would he be if his covenants were contingent only upon our abilities? You are not saved by your capacity to be a good Christian. You are saved by Jesus' infinite capacity to be the Savior of sinners. You are not holy because being holy scores points with God. We are holy because we should be in awe of the forgiveness and grace of a God whose covenants transcend our failures. What was it like, I wonder, for David the day that Bathsheba told him she was pregnant with their second son. Did he write a song? Now, I actually have an opinion that he did. Um, that seems to be what David did all the time. I think he was a descendant from that guy with the guitar. Um, I actually think when you go through the book of Psalms and you read the passages, all in, you can go through Psalms and you can find the son Psalms. Kiss the son lest he be angry. You know, songs like that. I think those are songs that were written out of the birth of his son. What was it like to know 
that God's covenants transcended his failures. If you're struggling today with with getting over who you have been and the failures you have had, we need to take those things and we need to put them on the altar before our God. Call them what they are and remove ourselves from the position of being dominated by those failures to the position of offering them to our God and allow Him to work in His way to fulfill His covenant in us. You say, but I wanted to do this and now I can't do that anymore because of this. That does not mean God is done with you. It does not mean God is done with you. I had a friend who said it said to me, and I'm not going to get into it, but um, came out of the ministry due to some accusations and basically said, well, that's it. That was all I could have done. That was all I was going to be able to do for God. Really? That's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Just because you're disqualified from one thing does not mean that you can't still be used by God. Just because you you failed and there are consequences for your failure, that doesn't mean you give up on God's covenant and grace and the work of the gospel. You find a place where you can serve, where you can be used. You find a new place, a new vestige, a new role. I turned 46 this year. I know, young. That means that for uh, my entire adult life now, from the time of college, I've been in Christian ministry. At times I've worked other jobs and things like that. If you had met 16-year-old me, you would have known that was not what I wanted to do. I didn't believe God had called me to that. God had called me to join the Marines, break things, and kill people. That was what I was going to do. I was going to be the dog of war. God took away that dream. I even tried to reattain it. I even tried to enlist in the Marines in my, my second year of college until they told me I couldn't guarantee my job. And I was in college during, I don't want to get into the details of this, but I was in, I was in college, you know, 1994 to 1998. Do you guys, you remember who was president then? And what our military was doing then? Places like Bosnia, you know, not so, not a fan. Um, I thought my life was over if I couldn't do that. I think God was right and I was wrong. Um, We could go on and on and on and on about things that we wanted to do. And they, maybe you're disqualified from it or God pulled you away from it. And you say, well, if I can't do that thing, I have friends who uh, wanted to have children 
and, and then they weren't able to have children. Well, what can I do if I can't be a parent? And God gives them another role, another ministry, another place, more fulfillment. I know guys that have been in the ministry, got run out of the ministry, said, well, God's done with me. I can't be used anymore. I have a friend who was in the ministry, got fired not weeks after he had gone to Haiti to get his adopted son and had to go into the business world. Well, this is the end. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. How can, I, how can I support my family? How can, I, how can I serve? How can I minister? How can I lead? But God was at work. God's covenants are not controlled by our conditions. It was true for David. It was true for Abraham. It's true for Jacob, and it's true for you. So this week, as you reflect on Advent, can I encourage you to reflect on one aspect of God, Christ's incarnation? Is that it came anyway. He came into your life anyway. He came to the world anyway. Despite all of our failures, all of our weakness, all of the struggle, all the long history of Israel's failures within their covenant, he came anyway. And you went through your life and maybe you were this or you were that or you were here or you were there or you sinned this and you did that and this fell apart and that didn't work and this was broken and that was it. He came into your life anyway because he's God and you're not the boss of him. And as deep and profound as that, that statement is, when you embrace that reality, you will find freedom in his work and his covenants. He is God, and I am not. They are his covenants. They are not contingent upon me. And praise God that they are not. And may he be glorified among us and in the midst of us. I have a word of prayer. Father, wherever we come from, as followers of Christ, we're headed toward you. Teach us to forgive ourselves as you have forgiven us. To live in your covenant and not in our failures to own up to our failures, our mistakes, to lay them on the altar before you and see what you would do with us. You are gracious and you are good and you love us. Help us to remember when we do not love ourselves. We pray this all, Jesus, in your name, to your Father, by the Holy Spirit.